Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 8th, 2022. This is episode 3048 of the Survival Podcast. We begin today what will be at least a five-part series, but it doesn't mean we'll talk about it tomorrow or Thursday or Friday again. It means that we'll talk about it one of the days next week. We'll be dropping one of these a day for at least five weeks, and I'm already seeing it going at six or seven in my head. We're going to start a series on the design science of permaculture. Today is Permaculture's and Design Science Part 1. And if you are the person that's like, I don't know about the permaculture stuff, give me a shot today. We did... Uh, the body of this is a live stream on uh, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and uh, uh, Stitch and all those other places and Odyssey and Float, and the feedback was phenomenal. People love this. I may talk about this in a way that you've never heard before. If you've heard me talk about it before, I think it's one of the best I've ever done, um, but you, at least you know where I'm coming from. Some of you are new to prepping, new to the survival podcast. Permaculture is a hippie thing. and No, no. Give me a shot, and I think I will blow you away with the biggest thing you can do to be more prepared, to build so much resiliency into your life that you're taking responsibility for yourself and that of your children. You know what happens when you do that? You're a lot more self-sufficient and self-reliant. So that's where we're going to start up today. We're going to be talking about a bunch of stuff. I won't say exactly what we're covering because I did that in the live stream, so we'll just jump in and say... If you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways that you can help us out is do business with our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one is Western Botanicals. They have been a sponsor forever and a day. They have everything you need for your herbal needs from raw materials to make your own stuff to instructional materials to things that were already put together. Real people that really care about you, they will answer the phone and help you uh, with any customer service you need. And they're real people that live in Utah, not New Delhi. And I ain't putting New Delhi down. I'm just saying that like when you're in America trying to buy from an American company, you want to talk to somebody that's a native language speaker and is right there at the place where the stuff come from and can help you. That's what you get with Western Botanicals. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. I'm a big believer in being a responsible gun owner, but I also know a gun without ammo is nothing but an expensive club. And I know that when things start to dry up, that guns don't dry up anywhere near as fast as two things, magazines and ammunition. They really can't help you with the magazines, but they can help you with the ammo, all the common calibers that you're looking for available in bulk at great pricing with lightning-fast shipping. I'm telling you guys, once you're in their system and set up to buy from them, your ammo shows up so fast, you're like, I didn't, what, what is that? Oh, I ordered ammo yesterday. It's here. It really is like that. They're like the Amazon Prime, even though they're a small companies. So don't take it the wrong way. But as far as delivery efficiency, the Amazon Prime of ammo. Check them out today at bulkammo.com. Remember, they do a discount for members of the MSB. With that, before we plunge on into this, remember, if you want to be an MSB member and you're not already, I'd really appreciate it. When you listen to today's show, if you think, you know what, just this show was worth a few bucks, there'll be a few more like it, then do a value-for-value exchange with MSB. Instead of worrying about the discounts or anything, just join. 35 bucks instead of 50 bucks for a full year. Discount code MEXICO22, and that's going to run out at the end of March. I'm running this all through March, and there ain't going to be another sale for a long time running a 30-day sale. Uh, that came out when I did Arcapoco and spoke there. I decided if I was going to give it to them, I'd give it to you all too. Mexico 22, you get it for 35 bucks. But a lot of people paying in Bitcoin crypto, 
You can do that. Just follow the procedure to sign up with crypto. It'll come to me. I'll send you an, an address back, and we'll adjust the pricing when we do it. Or you can sign up using debit, credit, etc., PayPal. Right on the website, just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more. With that, let's drop on into the live feed. And we are live. Welcome, folks, to uh, today's episode of the Survival Podcast, which I believe is 3,048. We're going to start a series today on uh, the design science of permaculture, and I'm going to be doing this as an overview, uh, meaning that I'm going to try to get people who are already doing permaculture, think of it like if you were playing high school football, you had uh, a few games that weren't exactly optimal, and the coach brings you back to your fundamentals, and then you take those fundamentals and you build into your advanced strategies, right? So we're definitely going to start with fundamentals today, and this whole series is going to be mostly fundamentals. And so I've already seen some people in the chat uh, that have PDCs, for instance, and I think this will still be valuable uh, in that respect. And I also I'm kind of a unique and different teacher. I've seen Jeff Lawton's name mentioned in a few of the chats, too. Some have their PDCs from Jeff, especially uh, from one of his many uh, online PDCs. That's fantastic. I do as well. I've, I've worked with Jeff. I've spoken alongside Jeff. Uh, I guess maybe a lot of you do know who I am. And so this next part isn't really necessary, but for those that are either tuning in today because somebody told you about this and you thought, let's see what this guy has to say, or if you find this series later, because my plan is this will be at least five episodes, and they'll probably be dropped one a week for the next five weeks, though I have some speaking engagements, so there may be a break in there somewhere. Uh, and I'm already kind of thinking that maybe that five-part series is going to be a six- or seven-part series. This actually is a series that I sort of kind of did before back in 2005. I'm taking the rough outlines from there, expanding them, adding slides and, and some multimedia and stuff like that as we go. And I'm revisiting them because I think as teachers, one of the things we need to do is we need to realize that as we go on in our journey, and I have done so many projects since Uh, the, the first time I kind of went through this series that my philosophy has evolved. I wouldn't say it's changed. It's evolved. It's, it's been added to. Uh, I'm a little bit different than a lot of your typical uh, permaculture teachers, and we're going to end today by dispelling some myths about who permaculture is for and who it's not for. Some of you will notice there's a rifle behind me up against my wall. If that troubles you, I'm sorry. I don't think that uh, Being a permaculturist prohibits the, uh, the possession of firearms. I know some people kind of are in that, that vein. Uh, one of my favorite people in the world of regenerative agriculture is Greg Judy. And uh, one of the ways he's developed sheep that he keeps in with one line of electric fence, which is supposed to be impossible, is when one figures out how to jump over the fence, that one goes in the freezer for personal meat. And he runs hundreds, if not thousands of sheep and keeps them in with one line of fence. That's a tool. It can be used for a lot of different purposes, but it's a tool. Uh, Bill Mullins himself talks uh, abundantly in his uh, PDC segments, if you find the old ones, on uh, aquaculture about shooting cormorants. And eventually you give up on shooting cormorants and you uh, you net your pond. So uh, I don't think that's a problem either. I just want you to realize you're, 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 you're listening to a guy who runs a podcast called The Survival Podcast, though we are far more rational than most people that call them preppers in our community. In fact, we're the ones always telling everybody to calm down. And I come to permaculture from a sustainability uh, mindset and from a regenerative mindset. And there's people that have basically stepped on the term sustainability. I don't. 
I look at it this way. We are all moving in steps forward in life. The first step is to stop taking more than we put back. And somewhere along that way, as we make that effort, we move from sustainable or from unsustainable to sustainable, which some people in, in, in the permaculture world would say that's barely hanging on. And to a degree, they're right. It depends. Depends on how the person means it. And then we go into a regenerative where that means we're re really putting more back than we take out. And we're actually improving ecosystems. Almost every person in the modern world and even a lot in the third world right now take more than they put back. They're in a negative. They're in a drawdown on our ecosystems. It is not possible for a person to take their life from a drawdown to a break even to a surplus in one go. There has to be a step point along the way. So my goal is first to bring people into a sustainable lifestyle and then take them further into a regenerative lifestyle. And that's why we're going to start today with the ethics, because that's exactly what they were designed to do. I'll say a little bit more about myself, just for those of you who have found me and like, this guy sounds okay, but I'm not sure why should we listen to him or what have you. Those of you who have followed me, you probably, if it's a the replay, you can skip ahead on it. Um, but I've been teaching permaculture since 2009. Um, I've spoken along people, alongside people like Joel Salatin, Mark Shepard, Jeff Lawton, uh, about the only person that I never got to speak alongside of or do a project with in some way that would be well known in the permaculture space uh, is probably Bill Mollison. And uh, that's, That's one of those kind of lifelong heroes I never got to met before he passed away. And it's a kind of an empty space. Um, my philosophy is about taking care of people while taking care of the planet at the same time. Uh, I am not um, some sort of eco snob, I guess, would be one way that we could we could phrase this. Um, I highly, highly, highly will do what is necessary to get a system off the ground. And that may include using some things that we would say are not permaculture because we're stepping up. Here's an example of where people kind of lose their minds and I'm okay with it, even though it's not something I've personally done. I've done one huge project, thousands acre project with Mark Shepard. You cannot look at Mark Shepard's end result and not call it permaculture unless you just don't want to, because for some reason you don't like the guy or something. However, Mark will use glyphosate. Now, you got to understand what that means. What that means is Mark will go into an ecosystem where you're trying to get trees up, and there are weedy species that will overtake the trees you're trying to get up, even if you're putting in pioneers like locust or something like that. And so he will use glyphosate at the initiation of the system once, and it never comes back. And with a six-month half-life, if we can get that system into production at three or four years, heavy production at three or four years, versus taking seven years to get it there because we're competing with species we don't want, I would be willing to make that trade-off. I'm not saying I would all the time or even that I would lean that way, but I'm not going to look at some a project Mark did and say it's not permaculture because he used that on the onset. It all depends, and everybody has their own design philosophy. So I'm, as a teacher, always going to be very open to the design philosophies of my students. And I may say some things or include some things in permaculture along the way that you disagree with. I may consider that doing hydroponics in a responsible way is permaculture and you may not think it is. That's okay. If, if we're looking for a place where we are all the same, 
then we are designing out diversity. And so many people seem so concerned about diversity. And true diversity is there's an open space for all things. And I believe over time, the ideas that are the most fundamentally correct will rise to the surface like cream to the top of milk. So that's where I'm coming from. That's who I am. Let's jump into it. We are going to start out here with the prime directive and the ethics. We're going to build from there. Today, we're going to be talking about the ethics, and we're going to talk about the prime directive. We're going to talk about what zones of design are. We're going to talk about rules of zones. Some of these are rules that um, come from others. Some of these are rules I've developed in my time uh, myself. We're going to go into the layers of a forest, uh, which You know, it seems like so many people come to permaculture because they hear about or see a food forest. And it is kind of like the ah moment of permaculture. The food forest is like the ultimate in permaculture. But we're going to talk about it both as it is as a forest and how those layers actually are not just forest layers. They're a repeating pattern in nature and in man-made systems, right down to the fact that cities are generally built in layers like a forest with a canopy and a subcanopy and a ground cover, right? So we understand that pattern recognition, even though we're not directly going into pattern recognition today. We're going to talk about some key takeaways from layers that we can then apply to things beyond building a forest. We're going to talk about six key permaculture principles. Uh, David Holgram is famous for putting out the 12. A couple of these are Holgrams from the 12. Uh, many of them are not. There are literally hundreds of permaculture principles. And the reason that we're going to start with the ethics in the prime directive is if we derive the principle based on the ethics in the prime directive first being met as our first primary restrictions, the principle will, in fact, be a permaculture principle. And then we're going to talk about a few permaculture myths. I'm going to give you some final thoughts. I do have some slides today. Uh, when they are pictures of systems that I've designed or built or maintained, I'll let you know. When they're just random images I've grabbed off of a, a website or something like that to help you understand, I'll tell you that. If it's a, if it's like a diagram, if it's like a, uh, a GIF or something, you know I didn't make it. I don't have any Photoshop skills at all. I'm lucky that I can make a thumbnail for these videos in 16 by 9 and put some text on it with image flip. All right, so let's get on into it, and uh, hopefully that gave people that are trying to come on board time to get there. But I do want to start off with the prime directive first, and then we're going to go into the three X ethics. This is an interesting phrase, this prime directive. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. I've done talks on permaculture in places where it's very much an amalgamation of people from different political philosophies. I've done discussions on permaculture where you, you, you couldn't throw a rock without hitting like a diehard Republican with the rock. And I've done uh, speaking engagements where you couldn't throw that rock and not hit a Democrat. And anything in between politically, if it matters to you, I'm a voluntarist, a.k.a. an anarchist. You don't have to be. I don't care. We'll get to that in the myths. The point I'm making when I bring this up is I've been up in all sorts of, of rooms and made that statement and had in just that one initial statement had people applaud in mass. It's, it is a very broad statement that people, depending on how they see getting there, they tend to embrace. Most of us recognize that there is a serious problem in our world with the way that we manage resources, the way we fail to care for land and the extraction mentality. Um, there is 
two real schools of thought in how you manage the world. There, and there's really only two. And I challenge you, when I give you something like that, don't try to break it. It's a teaching moment. You can always say, but what if, right? And I have a what if statement that I won't make, but maybe somebody in one of the chats will, right? Um, when I say this, I'm trying to get you to see at the absolute highest level with a metaphor. There is mining and there is farming. And I've used that to teach sales. I've used it to teach permaculture. I've used it to teach building businesses. I've used it to teach general philosophy of life. And uh, I actually see permaculture as a design philosophy for life before I see it as a way um, to grow food. It is, it is so much more than a way to grow food. It's a way to design housing. Is it a way to distribute water to people and things like that? I also really want you guys to, uh, if you have any questions for me or com things you want me to comment as we're going through this so that I can star them and come back at the end, because I generally don't do it in flow. I want you to put at least the first three words of your comment in all caps. If I see that, and most of the time I do, I have a little star feature. I'll star that, and that'll go into my follow-up. This applies to you if you're on Facebook on the live stream, Twitch on the live stream, or YouTube on a live stream, live stream. That's what comes in so I can see it. It's not that I don't care about the other platforms. If I didn't, I wouldn't be there. All right. So when we look at this concept of taking responsibility for ourselves and that of our children, we are not just talking about your son or daughter. When we say our children in this, we are speaking out into multi-generations, your great, 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 great grandchildren are included in this statement. And it requires then that we look ahead of where we are rather than only where we are. And it requires that we be farmers. And I don't mean farmer as in let's plow a field and grow corn. I mean that we have to think about the soil of life beyond the soil outside your window, beyond the soil that you plant a carrot into all the soil of life. When we grow plants, we think we're feeding plants. We're not. We're caring for soil and we're developing the soil food web and we're caring, we're growing soil organisms and the soil organisms in their life process, their death process and their waste process are what actually grows plants. We as humans are not that powerful. We don't have magical spells that we can cast and cause a bean to grow. What makes a bean grow is a very high-level soil process that involves beneficial bacteria and fungi and a relationship that allows nitrogen to be fixed. It's all in the soil. Now, if we take that soil and we stop thinking of it as the dirt we plant into and we start to think of it as the environment we leave behind, then the prime directive makes a lot more sense. Then we start to understand it at a much higher level. We start to realize that is up to us to actually make sure that the life web on our planet remains intact for our children and their children's children. And once you see it that way, everything else makes sense. So then we go into the three ethics. Now, what I love about the three ethics, if you understand the prime directive, the way that I just explained it, if you fully understand what I'm trying to say, you don't even need them. You would logically come away from understanding if the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and that as our children as farmers in the life web that is the ecosystems of the planet so that it's there for them too, 
So we're in a, a, a regenerative mode versus an extraction mode. We're actually concerned about the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and not just will their property values stay up? Will they be able to go to college? We're actually concerned about this, the place they're going to live. Then we would know that our first ethic is that we have to care for the earth. If it's harming the earth, it's not permaculture. And some of you will say, didn't this clown admit that in a certain situation he might use glyphosate, right? Yes. Would I spray a field with glyphosate once a year with a GMO crop in it? Absolutely not. I wouldn't even monocrop the field in the first place. If what we're doing is going to lead us into regeneration, we are caring for the earth. If what we are doing is never going to lead us there, then we are not. However, there's a, a lot of people in kind of the ecological movement. I don't really consider people doing this to be permaculturists, that they want to care for the earth and ignore the needs of humans. This would also not be an ethical decision if the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. We have to care for people. So if it's harming people, it's not permaculture. And then we get to the third ethic, that there's a lot of debate from a lot of people who want to drag their politics into permaculture. I've told you my political ideology. We won't talk about it again. I don't care what your political ideology is. It, it is something you can take permaculture into your politics, but it's probably bad to bring your politics into permaculture. Anybody that's listened to me talk knows, like, if you, like, start listening to my show after this, and you're like, he said not to do that. We're not talking about permaculture the day that you come up with that, Okay. Return of surplus is the original third ethic. In fact, the original third ethic is not even return of surplus. It is setting limits to population and consumption. That is how it is spelled out in the in Permaculture One, which was the first publication on permaculture put together by Holgram and Mollison. But it means the same thing. Some people have tried to change it to share the surplus or redistribute the surplus. Okay. Let's go back to mining versus farming, extraction versus regenerative. The worst thing you can do in an ecosystem, if you actually want to build it into a regenerative model, is to take surplus out of it and distribute it. This is sometimes called fair share. I agree with the term fair share. I just think it's misunderstood in the way that it is explained. When I say return of surplus, I want you to think this way. I grow in my main crop area, corn. It's not an evil plant as long as we don't plant 70,000 acres of it. And in that area, I have this giant plant that's nine feet tall and nine feet and it has two or three 12 inch ears of corn on it. Maybe it's a hard corn for a grain, maybe it's a sweet corn for cooking on a grill. Doesn't matter. That's all the food there is. That's all I have. Now I have these giant stalks. If I am to redistribute my surplus, what am I supposed to do with those stocks? Sell them off a of silage or mulch or whatever to somebody else. They leave my farm and I get a monetary yield with the surplus left. Where does that surplus go? If I'm smart, I can use it as silage. I can use it as mulch. I can use it. I can just chop it right back into the soil and I can return it to where it came from. That's what return of surplus is. And it requires then that we set those limits to population and consumption. And this is where we need to understand, where did these three ethics come from? So what happened is I banned a, a porn spammer. Goodbye. Um, Mollison and Holgram, as they were developing permaculture, dug into the philosophies of indigenous peoples 
throughout the world who was left and, and the, what was left of them from those that were gone. And they took all of the ethics of indigenous peoples, peoples who actually lived from the land sustainably and regeneratively, civilizations that would have lasted had others not come and destroyed them, and said, what were their, what were their philosophies of life? What were their ethics? What did they base their decisions on? And they took all of these different people that lived in all these different lands that spoke all these different languages and all these different climates that had all these different philosophies about how to get along and go along. And they distilled it down into the three core ethics of them. And the reason this is important and the reason I spend more time on this than a lot of permaculture teachers do who tend to just gloss over it and get into what we're about to go to next is the restrictions upon a design guide the design. And if you were to walk into a giant uh, warehouse, say, not even giant, just 3,000 square feet, what would be a big home? And all you had was four walls and a big open space. And somebody said, design a living room with furniture and a TV set. Well, it's kind of hard to figure that out. The first thing you have to do is you put in walls or you put in some sort of sense of flow that this is where a kitchen goes, this is where a bathroom goes, this is where a sleeping area goes, this is where we're going to actually have our sitting living room where we're going to hang out. As soon as you do that, you're like, well, you can put seating here, here, and here, artwork or television or some sort of screen here, uh, audio around, whatever it is you wanted to do. It all becomes immediately evident what to do. When you go do a design with permaculture, inevitably you're going to actually suffer from a lack of creative restriction. You're not really going to know what to do. You're going to learn about client analysis and landscape analysis in this and sector analysis in this. But you still have, even with a relatively small property, quarter acre, where does everything go? And what we need is there's those initial framework of walls to create the restriction that starts to guide the design. That's why I've spent so much time on this. I hope it was worth doing it for you guys. So now we can get into more of the you know meat and potatoes of design. Let's talk about permaculture zones and design. And we are going to do this the way everybody does it. And then we are going to deconstruct it into what reality looks like. So generally speaking, you'll see permaculture zones of design drawn out exactly like this. Sometimes it looks more like a bullseye. You see the whole thing instead of a half of a circle. And you'll see that where you live inside your home, maybe right outside the front door, is known as zone zero. And this actually wasn't in the original work that Holgram and Mollison did, but it soon got added in, and I think it makes sense. What we're going to do to make a home heat itself is part of our zone zero. And zones are based mostly, not completely, but mostly on activity. So the lower the zone, the more time we spend in that place. Most people spend most of their time in their house, on their front porch, on their back porch, or walking around it. So it makes sense that that would be a zone zero that's more, there's more time spent there and more attention. It's not just time, it's attention. You're more likely to notice a cracked window than weeds growing in your garden, even if it's a kitchen garden just outside. So it's about attention and occup occupancy, and it's also about a practical nature of what can be done with the land. 
which is where this whole model of being kind of the sequential bullseye shape will break down at the next slide. So in zone one, we're generally going to take care of things that we can take. We're going to take care of because we're going to naturally step there every day. Our annual gardens will tend to go in zone one. Our perennials that require attention on a regular basis, pruning, fine mulches, etc. Things like that will go into zone one. But we'll also, let's say that we're heating the house with wood. If we are in a long winter climate where we're going to need to go get wood daily or every other day for a long period of the, of the, of the season, we're probably going to put our wood storage in zone one, or at least even if we have our big wood reserve further out, we're going to have some place that we can bring surplus wood to so we can just step outside the door and grab it. And any activity that we're going to need to do daily or almost daily for any significant part of the year, if we can make it work, we want to design it into our zone one. As we move out into zone two, I call this where you're at weekly. That may or not, may or may not be a hundred percent true. Okay. It may or may not be. It's not an ironclad rule, but if you're in a place at least weekly because of your natural movement on the property or your designed movement on the property, you've designed pathways that I'm going to go to this place at least once a week and it's going to take you through this other zone. It probably makes sense to design your zone two into it. And zone two is going to be things like. Your small orchards, your backyard orchards that have thicker mulches and don't require daily attention, that maybe require a little bit more seasonal attention, but not daily attention. Bees do really good. You can see in the design there in zone two. Your garden crops that don't require that astute attention. It looks like they have sweet potatoes in this one. That would be an, an honest to God, great crop in a zone two. That could either be a more conventional looking garden bed or it could be a ground cover around your orchard. But that's the way to think about your zone two. You're just not going to be there as much. Zone three are where we would do our main agricultural crops if we've designed them into the system. So if we have a place where we're growing amaranth or corn or large quantities of potatoes or other carbohydrate crops or something like that, then that's your zone three. It's a place that you're going to be Frequently, but most of what's there does not require daily attention with a caveat. Some of us are going to not do real heavy intensive design, right? Uh, for any sort of crop like, a, like these high carbohydrate crops or very large garden systems or things like that. We're gonna, we're gonna more grow our nutrition and raise our calories in that we're going to look more to Things like chickens and, and livestock. If we're talking chickens, we're probably pulling them into the zone one, at least their housing, at most their zone two, because they require daily attention. But we may design our zone three more as grazing systems, and we may push that into zone four, as you see in this diagram. It all depends. You're the designer. It is your palette, and it is your canvas, and you get to design it the way you want, as long as we follow this basic concept we're not doing this as a restriction. These zones are not restrictions. The, the restrictions, right, like the restrictions, you were made for the restrictions, but the zones were made for you. This is about your activity and intelligent uh, use of your energy. When we move out into zone four, we're generally looking at larger scale farm forestry. 
This is where we have our full-on big food forests that need almost no attention. Or if we're designing grazing systems, it's kind of a zone 3, 4-ish thing. We can determine for ourselves how we're going to do this. But if we're doing a civil pasture grazing system, so we have long rows of trees. Maybe they're on earthworks. Maybe they're just planted because we can do that. But then we have pasture in between them. That's kind of moving somewhere between zone four and three, depending on how you design the system. And then zone five is pure wilderness. It's a place that we don't necessarily go that often, but we can go as often as we want. But what we don't do there is we don't go cutting down a bunch of trees. We don't go clearing land. We leave it as wilderness. That doesn't mean that there might not be this really amazing mature tree out in zone five. And we might not look at that tree and say that tree is at the end of its life expectancy. We can harvest that tree as most high quality timber. And in a healthy zone five, even though we probably should plant a tree, even if we don't, something's going to fill that glade, that open space. We hunt and gather in zone five. Zone five is the zone that we go into and we truly become horticulturists and hunter-gatherers on land that we steward and manage during our lifetime. Now, some of you are thinking, where the hell do I put a zone five in my quarter-acre backyard? Good thought. We're going there next. We're going there right now. Um, these are some places where people get hung up on zones, and I, I think it's really important that we cover them. Number one, you don't have them all on all properties. Not every property has five zones. And I think some people teach permaculture from a mindset of, of, of all, you know, all properties have five zones. And I've seen people do urban, suburban properties with some little corner that, that's unkept and maybe there's a little bird bath or a pond there and it's like an homage to zone five. Well, then it's very tiny. It's very tiny. And when we talk about doing these zones, They should become progressively larger. The thing that we have to put the least maintenance in is the biggest. So your zone zero is your house. Zone one is kind of just around it. Zone two is a little further out. It's bigger. It's more, you know, if we're designing 100 acres here, your zone five may be 50. To put it in perspective, it may be more than that, depending on what your goals for the property are. So, but if we have a, a quarter acre property, we're not going to have that. So don't get hung up on this. It's very common in an urban property to have like a zone one, zone two, and that's it. Some will have a zone one, zone two, zone three. And then zone three does not become a main crop zone, even though we said it was. It becomes more like where the materials are kept that we don't use that often, right? And where we design things in like a fedge might be your zone three in an urban property. What's a fedge? It's a hedge that screens out your neighbors and noise or bad views or whatever, but instead of being you know, red tips are something that are going to die and produce nothing and require maintenance. It would be productive plantings that produce something we can either eat or harvest. That would be a true hedge. A food hedge would be something we could eat, but it could be a productive hedge. You know, it, it could be a productive hedge in that if we actually were to build a hedge from something like willow and we were to maintain that willow uh, long term, Uh, in a pruned manner that only got so big and it constantly coppiced back for us, producing small bits of willow, we could harvest those small bits every year and we could make artist charcoal and we could have an economic yield. 
So that could be our zone three in an urban environment, or it could be a zone two. Again, you get to decide. The next thing is, not only should they get progressively larger, they are not circular. They are specific to a property. So if you look at this zone map, and I don't uh, remember where I got this one, but this is a much more typical zone environment. And for those that are on the audio, I'll, I'll try to describe it best I can for you. You've got your home, your zone zero dead center, even though I don't have it marked. And right out in front, you got a little blip that is zone one. Then further out front, probably because it's south facing, right? And you're going to have great solar exposure here. You have kind of this wraparound zone two. Then you have a zone three that's not actually bigger than zone two. It's a little bit smaller, but it's behind the home. And then up to our northwest corner, we have our zone four, our farm forestry. And then on our uh, northeastern corner, we have our zone five left to itself. And they're all kind of close to the same size except for zone one. This breaks the rules. But you know what? If that design works for that property, then that's fine. That's okay. When we say they should get progressively bigger, what we're saying is that would be the ideal situation. But now how do I adapt it to the property? Um, next, you should spend most of your initial effort in zones one and two. And this is a huge mistake that most people make. It's fine to go ahead and design a full property if you have a large property. If you're in an urban property, it's, this is not that big a deal. But there's so many people, they finally get that 10 acres, 20 acres, 50 acres, 200 acres. And they want a food forest. And they want their food forest to be a big food forest or an agroforest. So, you know, you don't just have to produce food. We can produce food, fibers, medicines in, a, in, a, in, in something like this. We can produce uh, a massive amount of biomass that can be used for composting operations. And we can return some of that compost, but we can export some of it if we do it responsibly. As long as more goes in than comes out, we're in a regenerative mode. We can, like we talked about, artist charcoal, you can make a little bit of that in the backyard, but man, you could make a tremendous amount. You could make biochar. You can make nuts. And nuts can be used as a direct food product or they can be an oil product or an animal feed product. There's so much we can do with that zone four. So they get into their big property and I want to do that. The first thing you do if you want to be a good farmer, feed the farmer and the farmer's family. And the majority of what will feed the farmer and the farmer's family that we can get up into production quickly is going to be our zone two, zone one, zone two, maybe zone three, but probably not. Because we can grow the exact same crops in two as we do three. We just grow more of them in three. So if we first create stability for the farmer and his family, then everything else becomes empowered. Then we have time to do the rest of the work. Then we create a multi-generational system because when my grandson inherits the farm, he's fed. This is the exact opposite of what we do in modern agriculture. Extract as much as we can as fast as we can rather than build up the sustainability of the family that's going to live and manage and steward this land. If you build a zone one and zone two well, you will never be hungry. At times of the year, you may get a little bored with eating the same thing, but you'll never starve. And if you'll never starve, you never get desperate. And when you get never get desperate, you don't break the ethics and you don't break the prime directive. Oh, isn't that interesting? So because we go into a point where we start with zone one and two and we start with the goal of feeding the farmer and his family first or her family first, we just did what? We just followed the prime directive. We took responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. Instead of telling the rest of the world what they need to do, telling everybody else what they've done wrong, we said, hey, my first responsibility is to myself and my children. Thing I got to do every day. 
eat. And then if I sensibly design that system to use energy flows properly so my house self-heats, now I'm, I'm getting less of an impact, yes, on the global electric grid. I'm doing less fossil fuel use, but I'm also seeing to our own needs and that of our children. If I have a house that self-heats, hey, that's one less thing I have to worry about. It's also a net positive. And that's the thing in this. When we get overly worried about ecological impacts from the standpoint of the whole world, we lose focus on us. We go out from our circle of control, far outside our circle of influence into our circle of concern. And when you spend your time in your circle of concern, you literally can't do anything that really matters. Okay? So that's why this is important that we start close to home. Walk outside your door. Get two feet past the, the edge of the porch. Look down. There's a square foot. Design it. Now, look at every square foot that touches it. Design that. Look at every square foot that touches that. Design that. Design with the end in mind. That's a principle we won't go into today. Yes, but once you kind of get this overall view of what this is going to look like, now start with, what do I do when I walk out the front door? Every morning, I'm going to, or every, someone, one point during the day, I'm going to go outside to my mailbox. Maybe I'm going to, maybe I live at home, work at home, so I'm literally going to walk to the mailbox. Maybe I'm going to pull the car into the driveway or garage and go to the mailbox. Then am I going to go back in the garage or I'm going to go through the front door? What does that path look like? What are the opportunities along that path? I know I'm going to be there every day. It's zone one. Go out your back door. Do you sit on your back porch and have coffee? What can you see? If you can see it to the point where if there was a plant four or five inches tall that was new and you'd identify it and say, hey, that's a new plant growing there, some sort of weed. Is it beneficial or bad? It's zone one. At least it has the potential to be zone one. Design that first. Design your zone two second and worry about your larger systems next. Now, I'm not saying don't go put in major earthworks. Like if you have ideal spots for dams, swales, things like that, that may change this a little bit. Okay, because I will get a dam into a property as fast as I can because I know what it will do for life and biodiversity. I will hydrate land as quickly as I can if the opportunity is there. But for most people, and in most situations, if we design that zone one, zone two, we can do them concurrently. But we really want to make that zone one and zone two hum in the first year or two because now there's an endless supply of food. A great way to get a fundamental understanding of what this can do for you. There's a book. Uh, I'll try to add it to the notes, but you can write it down for yourself right now. It's called Paradise Lot. It is not Paradise Lost, like the book. They're playing on that. Paradise Lot. And it's written by Eric Tosenmeyer. And then I can't remember his partner that wrote the book with him. And they bought... We used to call them half double. I guess you call them duplexes now. So it's two houses, but they're conjoined. And they had one, each had a little skinny backyard. They lived in the house together until they found wives. They took the fence down that separated and made one backyard. It's a very small backyard in a tough climate with bad orientation. If you read that book about how they developed it and how much food and product comes out of that small space and the life they built, that is all zone one in that book, honestly. You can call it zone one, zone two, but if you can walk there and back in less than a minute, it's zone one. And in just zone one, they have more food than they can use. They're sharing, they're, they're literally pulling perennials out of the ground and selling them as clones because the food they're growing and the productive plants they're growing have become weeds. So really focus on this. And somebody's making a, a statement here that's, that's very true. Homestead Glamour Girl says, Blueberries are crazy expensive these days. I'm glad our blueberries are finally large enough to produce a decent amount. 
Everything I'm telling you today is becoming more true in our current economic stressed situation, more true in our ecologically stressed situation. When we have ecological stress, even if we think finances are okay, and they're not, but even if they are, the cost of living goes up. This, the society I'm talking about is not a drawdown society. It's a build-up society. And the cost of everything, therefore, goes down because if everybody can grow food, there's less stress on the larger distribution system, which we will still rely on. All right. Going on from there, I want to talk about the seven layers of a food forest. And this is something that we would spend an hour and a half on if we were doing the the food forest part of a PDC. And honestly, we would spend a tremendous amount of time on it in the trees section as well of the, of the permaculture designers manual. I'm going to give you a basic overview because what I'm trying to do for you today is open your mind to how you can see these patterns and technologies and techniques and strategies and adapt them to your property or property that you're helping somebody with. I don't want to give you a cut and paste recipe because frankly, it doesn't work. So the seven layers of the food forest, when we look at any forest, especially where the edges lie and where it comes out into fields, we end up with a canopy. These are your, these are your grandparents. If you're thinking of a family. Okay. The canopy is the grandparent tree. It's the huge giant oak that has an 80 foot span. It is the thing that when you go into the forest, you feel like what you feel like you're doing what you really are. You're entering a living organism. It is not just a tree. The forest itself acts as a living organism. There's actually trees like the aspens in parts of like Colorado and other parts of that part of the United States that scientists have figured out that all of them intertwine their roots to where they might as well be a single thing. And those interactions through things like soil exudates exist in every healthy forest. It is a living organism. And the canopy is what really makes you feel that when you walk in and it's a hundred degree day and the temperature drops 15 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the canopy that does that. That creates the micro environment. That creates the protected nature. And then you have your, your parent trees, your sub canopy. They're the ones that aren't not quite there yet. They're a little bit shorter. Number two in the diagram right here would be a subcanopy tree. And those are the trees that are waiting for their turn when the, when the, when the patriarch or matriarch of the, of the forest finally falls, either because it was time to be harvested or it just reached the end of its life. That subcanopy is what spreads up next and takes over, becomes the next matriarch or patriarch of the forest. Okay. And that you will find those in little pockets and little openings in the forest where they get enough light to grow that way. There's some species that have adapted to live there their entire lives, like pawpaws in North America would be a species that is a, a, a sub canopy species. It never tends to become the massive, you know, head of the forest unless all the other species die and that's what's left. It generally you'll find it growing in glades and in that secondary zone. Then, number three, you have your shrub layer. These are your berries. These are your, if you live in northeastern United States, these are your buck laurels that you can't even get through when you're trying to get through parts of the forest. This is anything that doesn't actually turn into a tree. Now, all of these can be native species. They can be productive species. They can be planned things that we put in place. 
But nature's going to fill this space. Um, next up, we have our herbaceous layer. So this is where we have a mix of perennials and annuals in general. And this would be anything we would commonly call an herb or even many things that maybe we wouldn't call commonly an herb. Things that we think of as a pest like ragweed would be in that herbaceous layer. Now, I want you to start thinking about edge at this point. Okay. I want you to, because we're going to, we're going to cover that in principles today. But if, if you, if you start to think about what I'm saying, when you are in the, with some exceptions like buck laurel in the Northeast, if you are in a healthy, mature forest, it's almost like you're in a park. There's not a lot of canopy. Okay. There just isn't. It's open. When you're talking, you're looking at oak trees, you can barely get your arms around. You can walk freely through that forest. And you might see a little sub canopy and some shrub and some vine here and there, but it's pretty open. As you're heading out to a field, all of a sudden you find yourself fighting through that shrub layer and that herbaceous layer. And there's, that's where your highest yields are on edge. So as we're designing our forest, if we're designing something like as a food forest, we're probably designing something like we're using earthworks and swales, which we'll get to in a future uh, episode. But we're designing our forest much more thin and long so that we can create more edge. And as we move into that edge, we're going to come into ground covers. Ground covers is anything that sprawls out across the ground. And I'm going to tell you something about nature, something that you can with your eyes, you can see immediately there's been something bad happened here or maybe something eventually good, but something happened here. If you're in nature and you look down at the ground and you see bare earth, there's been a, what we call a disturbance. Something's been compacted, burned, eroded, plowed, damaged in some way. Nature doesn't do bare ground except maybe in parts of the desert, which we have made worse. And there's a lot more bare ground than there should be in desert. Bare ground is, in general, not always, but in general, bad. Bare ground, when rain comes, the soil leaves. This is why we have such an erosion problem with modern agriculture, because we kill everything. We plant a crop for a year, and then it dies, and then we kill it again. So we plant a crop, and then we kill it again. And it spends an awful lot of time with very small plants or no plants in a bare ground model. So when we don't see ground cover in a place, we want to take corrective action. And that ground cover can be mulches and things like that. But in here, we're talking about plants that grow as ground cover that sprawl out. Next, we have the rhizosphere. What is that? That is anything that has a productive yield of some sort down in the roots. And that could be for us or it could be for animals. An example of a ground cover and rhizome plant would be a plant called chufa. Uh, tiger almond, I think is what they call it in the Middle East. We consider it a weed. We consider it a nut sedge here in the United States, and uh, we don't do much with it, but it's basically a grass that grows as a clumping grass. It spreads rapidly, and it puts, produces little nuts about the size of a marble, somewhere between a, a big marble and a small marble, somewhere right around that size. And it's used to make a really great drink in the Middle East. I can't remember what they call it. Um, but it, even if you didn't want to do that, if you're building a system and you're out in your zone four or zone five, and one of the things you're concerned about would be like, Wild turkeys, wild turkeys, once that crop is mature and they're in a place where other things they prefer to eat is gone, once they find one, they'll eat almost all of them, but there'll always be enough for it to come back. That would be a rhizome and a ground cover. 
Another plant that would be a rhizome and an herbaceous plant would be something like Jerusalem artichoke. You have the artichoke yield, but you have an herbaceous species, not a ground cover. Right? These are just ways to understand things. And then you have climbers. Climbers are your vines. If you walk into a forest and, and you see those vines, uh, coming up onto trees, those are your climbers. Those are brambles. Those are poison ivy, right? Not all of them are things that we really want around. But we can use that space to grow something like kiwi or grape or a climate-appropriate vine that produces something we can use. And remember, one of the things that people get really hung up on permaculture, which is, to, to me, it's a huge mistake. It's a massive mistake. Can I eat this thing? I, I think we're really short-sighted with that because we're worried about the overall health of the ecosystem. Somebody's saying kudzu. Kudzu is a vine. And we're going we're gonna to get in the next slide, guys. We're going to get to why that's a very, very smart thing to bring up. But kudzu in the right system could be an asset. How kudzu got here is an interesting story. It wasn't like some guy got on a boat over in Asia somewhere and had a piece of kudzu stuck on his foot, and then it ate Atlanta. We brought kudzu here on purpose because in in the Asian continent, it was used as livestock feed, and it was a very effective livestock feed. And for a long time, we had an America that was made up of mostly small holdings. Every other person grew a small dairy cow or two, and there were lots of goats and sheep everywhere. And kudzu was largely controlled because there were so many things to eat, the, the kudzu. And when goats and sheep and, and, and all, all, you know, kind of smaller ruminants fell out of favor, everybody moved to the suburbs, and the kudzu was left to itself, then it ate Atlanta. That's how that actually happened, which is a great transition. So thanks, Sue, for that. Let's, uh, let's get the slides back up here. Here's some things to know about layers. They exist, so if you don't fill them, nature will. They exist. It is Layers are not a thing that you put in place. They are an understanding of space. And in permaculture, we stack both in space and time. And what I mean by that is if we're designing our own forest, if we do nothing and there's not severe damage and continued erosion to an area, the natural state of most ecosystems will be some kind of forest. It could be a little scrub desert forest made of, of different desert tree species and cacti, which is what the saguaro forests were before we screwed that up. Okay. Or it could be a great big giant forest like we have on the West Coast of the United States with giant overstory trees that you can't even, you, 10 people can't get their arms around. Or it could be kind of the oak, hardwood, beech, pine mixed forest of the Northeast. But, or it could be the semi jungle looking climate of Florida where I grew up as a young child in the swamps of Florida. But if you clear cut and you haven't done enough damage to break things, a forest will come back. That's what will happen. You'll end up, it'll be a different forest than the one you cut down. It probably could be a lot better if you helped it, but it will go back. They will have pioneer species and they'll go into overstory species and you'll have secession into a forest and it will fill those layers. So if we're designing one and we're stacking in time, we're trying to accelerate the process. We're trying to bring the forest into secession and into full productivity faster and hold it there longer by our management before it goes into decline because forests go into a, 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 a pinnacle 
and they go into decline and they rebuild all by themselves. If there were no people, that would happen. Okay, so we're trying to hold, we're trying to stack the time and then hold the time. We're also trying to stack the space. So we're going to put things into the space that are most beneficial to the health of the system and to our goals. And those spaces we gave you, the canopy, the subcanopy, the shrub, the herbaceous, the ground cover, the rhizome, and the vine layer, they exist in space. And if you don't fill them, nature abhorring a vacuum will send something to fill them for you. So when I first started teaching permaculture, coming from a standpoint of teaching preparedness as well, I had a lot of cohorts who were teaching more conventional gardening and things like that without this philosophy. And they'd say things like, well, I don't want a vine layer. Well, you have one. You have one. And if you're doing a garden that you're maintaining with a rototiller, I'm not going to beat you up for it. And you're also not going to have much of a vine problem. But if you're managing something in more of a forest type architecture and you don't put something in the space of the vine, you're going to get brambles. You're going to get something you don't want. You're going to get poison ivy. You're going to get kudzu. Next, layers scale up and down. And that's why I use this picture for a back lab going to skip ahead where there's there's no words on that picture. These are wicking beds. You don't really need to worry about that right now, but these are all annual crops. Uh, there's tomato, there's pepper, there's beans, there's nasturtiums with certain edible flower species. There's red amaranth that I use as a vegetable. There's fennel, uh, there's celery. There's, I mean, just, it's, if you, you know, well, those of you who can see it, uh, when I posted some pictures of this inside my aviary, um, there were people that just said, that's stunning, that's beautiful. That's a layered system. It's all annuals. None of them are canopy trees. But you can't tell me that the, the tomato that's all the way to the roof of the aviary there toward the midground is not a canopy. And that the, uh, the space being occupied by the, the burgundy colored plants, uh, in the fennel that's in the more foreground, right? That that's not sitting about where your sub canopy and that you don't have basically your, uh, your nasturtiums are acting as kind of an herbaceous layer, and they happen to be an herbaceous species. There's rhizomial layers in there because I'm growing things like Chinese artichoke in those systems as well. Uh, I'm growing things in there like ground nuts as well, which are a vine and a uh, rhizomial species. Uh, there's beans in there that are vining. There, there's, there's cucumber growing in those systems, right? Now, that is a microcosm of the layered system. And it's, it's why I say it's important to understand this beyond this is not how you build a forest. This is how a forest teaches you to build anything you want by understanding those spatial layers and stacking in space and time. I can get way more production out of the system I just showed you than most people would get with the exact same amount of space because I know full well that we're going to have secession, even though it's not a forest, in that I'm in Texas. And those huge, beautiful nasturtiums, if you look at that picture closely, the ones in the foreground there with the red nasturtium flowers, you see the leaves in the front are not quite as green and bright and brilliant as the ones to the rear. Why? It's not anything that's wrong with the system itself. It's temperature. Nasturtiums will grow here well till about June, mid-June if you're lucky, and they will die. And I will pull them out, and there's already plants like the Chinese artichoke that's going to take that space and grow me a tuber yield. So layers exist in annual gardens. They scale up and down, and they exist in natural and man-made systems. Like I said, even a city is a layered system. If you think about your standard large city, Dallas, Jacksonville, New York, what have you, your tallest buildings are generally in the city center. 
You go out progressively in zones of activity. You go to smaller buildings. Then you go to things that are more like condos and apartments. And then you go to the houses and then you go to royal spread out areas. Now we design that, but it's because the pattern is set. This is how systems work if they are to be functional. So that's not pro or anti city. That's just the way things are. And it's a good way to think about them. Next, I want to cover some design principles. And as I said, there are a lot of design principles from a lot of great teachers. The first two that we're going to talk about today are directly from David Holgram. Holgram is the co-founder of Permaculture along with Bill Mollison. Mollison was teaching at the university level. We'll talk more about the history of Bill and how he came to uh, create Permaculture and the PDC and, and build what we have today uh, in the future. But David was a research assistant to Bill as when he was a professor And they really were two perfect minds that worked together to develop permaculture as a design science. Uh, once that, that kind of like was kicked off and done and the initial work was done, David kind of went back to, I'm just going to go do this and I'm not going to worry about like evangelizing. I'm going to go prove that it works. And he has his wonderful little small holding, uh, in Australia. We'll talk more about that in the future, I'm sure. And Bill decided to become the voice. And Bill went out and, and created the permaculture design course and taught them all over the world and became the weedy pioneer species that went out and spread it. And along the way, eventually, David did enough of his own work that I guess he felt that it was time to come back. And he published a really great book and he included 12 principles. And I think if you know those 12 principles, you know enough. So I'm definitely I'm going to be including principles in every section of this series And some of them will come from Holgram. These do. That's why you see little diagrams there instead of pictures of my garden. Principle number one, observe and interact. Now, this is actually a really powerful principle. And there's a lot of ways to look at this. There's a lot of ways to skin this cat, so to say. So if I go out and I look on my property, And I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to grow some sort of a grain crop. And I look out on my property and I see wild amaranth and lance quarters, which is a goose, goosefoot species, but very close to an amar amaranthus species growing naturally on my property. It may make sense to choose amaranth as my grain, a grain amaranth versus something like a corn or a wheat because nature has just shown me The conditions in my environment are favorable to amaranth or goosefoots. So I might look at growing something like Huizotle, uh, which is another goosefoot species, which is kind of a, a, a man cultivated over time variety of land squirters as, as a grain crop. And I might use that as a green grain versus a dried grain because the, the grain heads on it are delicious used while they're still green, sort of like asparagus because I've observed and interacted. If I go out and I look at my property, one of the first things I want to do is make a shadow map. Where is the sun and when is it there? So which building casts which shadow where and where does that, where does that land in the heat of summer? Where does it land in the cold of winter? If I can find a place that gets a lot of sun in winter and less sun in summer, there's probably an opportunity there. That's an observation into, in, in an interaction. If I constantly have the regrowth of a pest species in a certain area, 
That's an observation. The interaction will then be either channel the pest species instead of trying to eradicate it, or what can I do to mitigate it? That's an observation and interaction. And, in, in, and until we actually start doing that, what we're trying to do is we're trying to form nature into our image rather than conform to what nature is trying to tell us. I am going to try growing tomatoes here again. I grow tomatoes here every year, just to be clear. And we have a real problem with blight in my climate, and we generally don't freeze the ground hard enough, and the blight that we have with tomatoes and potatoes both tends to occupy the soil, and it infiltrates the plant from the roots. So even if we do everything right at the soil surface, we still have some blight that comes in early and late blight with tomatoes. I learned this last winter that there's been tremendous success simply by using aspirin, of all things, plain old generic aspirin, with your tomato plants and fighting and creating disease resistance. So I'm going to try that. What I've done up till now, though, was observation interaction. Okay, blight wants to kill my tomatoes. Plant my tomatoes super early. Plant highly productive cherry tomato varieties. Harvest them. And under my tomatoes, I plant tomatillos, which don't get the blight. Once the tomatoes begin to really have the blight, I pull all the ripe tomatoes off. I cut all the green clusters and set them in the sun, on the ground, under the plant. They ripen over the next week. I harvest them. I can them. I dehydrate them. I freeze them, do whatever I want to. And now I have secession and the tomatillos come and then I have tomatillos for the rest of the year. That's observation interaction. If I can cure this blight problem, fine. If not, I'll go back to that. I'll accept what nature is telling me. That's observation in, um, in, in interaction. Um, let me, that's not where I want to be. Let's go. Where is it that I want? That's good enough for right now. Um, now here's the one I'm looking for. This one I think is a little better for the slide. Next is integrate rather than segregate. Holgren says many hands make light work. And I think that because there is this, there is this desire, I think sometimes to drag some of our political ideologies into permaculture we want to immediately see this as some sort of call for forced integration of human beings and then many hands make light work i mean the more of us work together the more we get done i think there's a place for that i don't have a problem with that but i think if that's how you see this and that's only how you see this and that's a singularity in which you see this you really don't understand the principle at all the principle here is by going here's part of the principle this is this is a i could do an hour on this we're not gonna but i could if we go into a polyculture environment, our yield goes up, not down. So you would think that if we'll use aquaculture for this, this is a great one instead of because it's, it's so easy to understand polycultures in a garden bed. We don't just plant a bed of beans. We plant beans and we interplant other things around them, different herbs and vines and, and what have you. And then the beans share energy as far as nitrogen yield with the other plants by producing nitrogen nodules on their roots. This is a common way this is explained. But let's look at aquaculture. So if you turn to pay, uh, chapter 13 of the Permaculture Design Manual, that's the chapter on aquaculture. And you look at some yields that were determined. If we have something like a predator species like bass, largemouth bass in an aquaculture system, we'll get a certain yield. And if we only put bass in there, we'll get a certain yield. And if we feed them, actively feed them, we pellet train them because we can train bass to eat feed just like we can uh, catfish. They will come up and they will eat pellet feed. We'll get a bigger yield because we added the input of feed. But if we simply add minnows, 
to that system, like let's say Gambrosia, which are going to help control our mosquitoes at the same time. They're known commonly as the mosquito fish. They're kind of like the North American guppy. They're guppies that don't die when the water goes below 50 degrees. They live under ice, right? We add the Gambrosia, which are a live-bearing fish and produce, it's like on-demand feeder. The yield in largemouth bass per acre of water will go up, not down, because we've integrated rather than segregating. And we can even then bring in another species of fish that's more of a plant consumer that won't really compete for the minnows like tilapia if we have the, the time and temperature to do tilapia. And our overall yield can go up yet again. And so we can do more if we bring more to the party. Another way to look at integration rather than segregation We tend to, in America, especially with mainstream ag, even small mainstream ag, segregate animals from systems. So if you look at what Sepp Holzer's done in Austria, and if you don't know Sepp Holzer, write it down, S-E-P-P-H-O-L-T-Z-E-R, Sepp Holzer, at his farm called the Kermatohof. He has these terraces in the mountains, and then you have basically like wind rogue hoogles that we won't get in today, but there's like these open spaces between these giant mounds and a lot of the productivity is on the mounds. And you have in between the mounds, you have basically pasture and things grow in that pasture. You don't necessarily want coming into fruition. You want to hold that you've stacked the time to what you're looking for. And now you're trying to hold it there. And what does he do? He walks across the top of these hills. He pulls out surplus plantings that the pigs will eat. He throws them down to the pigs who are walking on the flatland. They don't want to go up the steep 70 year angle of the hill of the Hugo Hill, and they eat that. But they're also grazing that pasture. And so when brambles come up in that pasture, they eat it or they trample it, and they maintain it. And so I was at a place where, um, let me ban another porn spammer. Why are porn spammers in freaking permaculture classes online on YouTube? Anyway, um, so I, I, I was at this place where Seth was teaching, And a student raised their hand, and this had to be done through a translator because Seb doesn't speak English. He speaks German. And he, the person said, well, I don't have pigs. What do I do? And he said very bluntly, like any kind of Austrian German will, if you don't have pigs, then you have to do the pig's job. Or you have to find something that will do the pig's job. So now I have to work more because I didn't integrate. I got my pig over in the pig pen. I, what I want to do is harness the animals. It's Sep, not Sep, for who's asking. Sep, S-E-P-P. Uh, I want to harness the animal's behavior and not let them go where they're destructive, but I am integrating and I'm putting the two systems next to each other. I think that'll do it for that one because, again, I'm just trying to get you to think on these things about how you can use these principles to solve your own situation, to design your own lifestyle, to design your own property, to design your own home. I, right down to designing your own business. That principle of integration rather than segregation, I used in businesses where I placed designers and salespeople in the same room together instead of segregating them the way that everybody wanted to do. Because I had the designers designing things and then the salespeople selling them, but then there was always this, well, they don't know what they're doing mentality. And so we eventually brought project managers into the space. So we had the project managers, kind of the sales engineers and the outside salespeople all together. And I said, whenever you're not clear on something, go ask. Don't send an email, right? You go over to the guy's desk and say, hey, 
What do you think about this? Will this create a problem for you? If the guy's on the phone or he's busy, he says, give me five minutes, give him five minutes, but talk to each other. Everything got better. Profit in the company went up. Attitude in the company went up. Relationships between the different groups went up. Integrate rather than segregate. So think about it beyond just a polyculture in your backyard. Next, this principle, the greatest yields are on the edge. This is really important because it's not necessarily the case that you always want more growing somewhere. You might want to limit edge to limit growth, or at least when you put edge in, you better understand what you've done. So the way that edge is usually described to people is here we see where forest and field come together in the first slide. And like I said, if you've ever walked through a field into forest woodlot, you usually have your youngest growth on the edge of the forest. Why? Because the forest is growing outward. Like the organism that it is, it's expanding, it's advancing into the field. The only thing that will prevent the advancement would be something like mechanical for human beings doing it, uh, mechanical with animals grazing and maintaining those systems. The, the plains savanna ecosystems are maintained by wild ruminants until we remove them. We called them buffalo. In Africa, we have wildebeest and gazelles and things like that, right? But one way or another, forest is going to grow, and the youngest growth is going to be on the edge. And that's why when you... Man, we got the porn spammers today, don't we? Block user. Um, I need to probably get some of you guys set up as, as uh, admins to help me with this. Anyway, um, that's why when you come out of that field and you go into that forest, it's just this tangle and it's hard. And you're like, I don't even know if I'm going to get through this. And you hack it with a machete or something or using snips to get in. And all of a sudden, you're inside the organism of the forest and you can move around. There might still be some vines and stuff in the way, but overall it opens up. That's because the greatest yield, where the greatest integration, multi-species integration happens, is the edge. But look at the other photo. For those that can't see it, it's lily pads on a pond. You have open water, and then you have lily pads. Is that not an edge? If you're a fisherman, and you're in a boat, and you're out on that open water, especially in summertime, when that edge is creating shade and cooler water, and creating a refuge for young-of-the-year fish, right, Tell me you're not going to move your boat right over to that edge and cast as close as you can to those lily pads because you know those predator fish are sitting right up in that edge. That's where all the diversity is. So this is good. So when we design something in permaculture, we tend to maximize edge. Instead of a square garden, maybe we make a keyhole garden, which means we have a round garden with a place we can walk to the center and opening in. Instead of having a six-foot circle, we have more of like a kind of a five-foot circle and then like a pizza slice taken out. There's less square feet in the garden, but it will produce more because we've extended the edge, and the gardener can go to the center and manage the system. When we build a raised bed, we create an edge. We create an interactive edge. So if we build a raised bed out of rocks, we create more edge. Same size, four by eight bed, rock that we pick up laying around the mountain, just chunks of granite. Looks really cool. We don't just have the edge between the soil of the garden and the edge of the rock, and then the native soil and native plants in the edge of the rock on the outside. We got millions of little edges inside where the rocks go together. Guess what? Stuff is going to grow there. Not necessarily bad, but it might be good to know that. We might actually create pockets then and plant things that are hardy, that are useful, like Mediterranean herbs, 
in that edge itself so that it occupies a space. That edge is also not just going to attract herbaceous life. It's going to attract animal life. We might want to design that edge to attract things like beneficial lizards and frogs more than, let's say, venomous snakes, though that's a difficult thing to do. But we at least want to be aware of it. The key point here is we want to design edge for productivity. But when we design edge, we're creating productivity. And if we don't harness it, just like the layers in the forest, those are all edges. The, the space between open space and the ground where the tree intersects is an edge. That's why the vine grows on it, right? The place between two shrubs that creates what almost looks like a, 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 a valley, if you think about it. These two shrubs are about, you know, chest height, and there's an open glade between them. They create kind of this valley edge, and that's where you're going to have herbaceous species and ground cover species pop up. Even in a giant lake without those lily pads. You'll see some guy out fishing in the middle of the lake. There's no edge. He's like in the middle of the lake. Why are the fish there? Well, there's a couple of things. One, there could be an underground weed bed that you don't see. He knows it's there. Fish are congregating around it. There could be a hump. I fish for white bass a lot. White bass are in the summer in Texas. You find humps, you find white bass, right? There could be some sort of rock shoulder. There could be a drop off. There's an edge. If there's a high concentration of fish, there's an edge. There could even be a cloud of, of, of uh, phytoplankton plant plankton that you can't see, creating a, a, a cloud of zooplankton that you can't see, creating a cloud of bait fish that you can't see, right? Or maybe you can see it on a graph, or maybe you can look down and see those bait fish. And the bait fish themselves become an edge, and that's why the predator fish come in to feed on them. But it all started with the phytoplankton edge. Edges create the greatest yields, but we have to harness that, because if we don't, something's coming anyway. The next, this is... uh where I get to, I, I have two of my principles today come from direct, uh, directly from Jeff Lawton. Jeff is my, my biggest mentor. I've been working with Jeff, uh, since about 2012. Uh, he's part of our expert council at the Survival Podcast. If you'd like to ask questions of Jeff, you can even submit them for us and hear them answered on our variety show expert council days. And the one thing that he said that, that stuck with me more than anything else he's ever said. Except for one more, which we're going to cover today, too. But this is like the second most. The forest is the greatest of all teachers. Remember when I talked about going into the forest as an organism? If you're ever fortunate enough to manage a property large enough to have a true zone five, the reason you never kill the zone five off is not just because it's good to have forest. It's your teacher. It's the place you can walk into when you don't have an answer and you can find an answer, it is the master's handbook that's available to all of us. If you don't have a property like that, you need to find real forest somewhere that you can go to. Again, I don't care if it's cactus and scrub desert forest, but you need to go into a forest. You find then you learn things that we'll cover later, like the forest floor is a, floor is a lake. I'll leave that in you to to infest your mind today and if you've never heard me talk about it before try to figure out how that's true but the forest floor is a lake that's a lesson that teacher gives you for free but the forest is the teacher that teaches with the most free giving of all things that it knows but it's the hardest one for the student to accept because the student has to be ready the forest will never force a lesson on you you'll have to be in the right mindset when you go into that forest, you have to be in the state of, I'm not sure what to do with this. 
but I'm open to an answer, even if it's not the answer I want. Like, don't do it or don't do it the way you think you need to or don't do it now. Those could all be answers. When we go into the forest, we see the natural interaction of living things. And that's what permaculture is all based on. Even when it's a social design, how to design a town or a city. Why are we designing the town or the city? If all humans were gone, what possible benefit would there be to that city in the future? Other than maybe plants will colonize it. When we go into the forest, we get the answers if we're ready to receive them. And that's a principle that I think even a lot of PDCs, they don't really cover. They may even say it, but they don't cover it as a principle. And for those that are new to this, PDC is Permaculture Design Course. It's a two-week course. It's very complex, and it's something I recommend everybody consider at some point in their life. Not everybody should do it, but I think everybody should consider it. And always remember that, that your answers lie with the teacher. And uh, James says he can... uh moderate but not i don't know how to do that right now james so we'll worry about that later let me just see something maybe i can do this uh no i have i can either put you in timeout or block you i don't have an option to turn you into a moderator all right next permaculture principle catch and store energy a lot of people use a solar panel to explain this so the sun hits the solar panel the solar panel converts the uh, the sunlight into electricity and then we've caught the electricity then we take the electricity into a battery and we can use the energy later. That's catching and store energy. Tell me though, you're not catching and storing energy when you grow an oak. So you, you take this little acorn, weighs an ounce, big acorn weighs an ounce, really big acorn, half ounce. And it grows in 50 years, a multi ton oak tree. Now, obviously the highest use of that oak tree is not cutting it to the ground and burning it for fuel. But if we, in our minds, do that, the ROI on energy from a half-ounce acorn to a multi-ton oak is incredible. Let's do it in a way where it makes sense to burn the tree. We take a black locust, one of the most resilient woods known to man. We grow the black locust for about seven years, we end up with a trunk that's bigger around than a large coffee cup like the one I'm holding, significantly larger. We cut that tree down. Maybe we get out of that that main trunk two really great pieces of wood that we can use for hand tool handles for tools or for fence posts. Fence posts will last 100 years. We get all of the slash. The slash is everything that's not the bowl wood. The bowl wood of a tree is the main trunk The slash is everything that comes off it. We cut the slash up. We use it in what's in this picture, which if you didn't know is a rocket mass heater. We'll get to that in a second. We get a tremendous amount of BTUs of energy. Maybe we even take some of the smaller pieces of wood and we use a rocket stove or a conventional wood burning stove to cook food. But what happens to the the black locust? Those of you that know this, what happens to the black locust that we've cut down? Is it gone? No, it will, it will coppice or pollard. If we do it to the ground, it's a coppice. If we do it at about head height, it's a pollard. It will grow back. It will grow multi-trunk. We can let it grow multi-trunk and keep taking those trunks for those small pieces of wood, or we can train the strongest leader back into a new tree. And in seven years, the tree that comes back will be bigger than the tree that we cut down. 
And we can do that for hundreds of years with that tree or hundreds of those trees. We're catching and storing and using energy and we're putting back because that tree is nitrifying the soil at the same time. If we're using some of that tree or we're using dead wood that falls off trees to, to run a rocket mass heater, got to put something here for Paul Wheaton, don't I? Um, what, what you see there is I'm not going to go into rocket mass heaters today, but this is a very effective way to burn a small amount of wood and catch much of the energy. The giant thing that that lady's sitting on kind of looks like a, a clay based um, couch that the heat is channeled all the way through that mass. And that heat becomes a thermal mass. And what you have to start doing is realizing literally anything that you can put energy into and take back later is a battery. Water is a battery. Thermal mass is a battery. A battery is a battery. If it can catch and store energy, a tree is a battery. And then everything about the way you look at the world will change. Because you stop seeing entropy as the ultimate winner and the ultimate enemy. And you realize that while entropy will eventually win, however many times I can rebound that energy back to the top of a system, I can make that system last longer. And even if that system will eventually decay, and all things do, we have lots of time now to figure out how to reboot the next system before it comes. Uh, Arkansas Woodcutter says fungus acts as a battery. It absolutely does in innumerable ways. But we're going long today, so I won't go. But that's a very astute thing there. Um, bringing Jeff back, and I kind of alluded to this already. This is the one that every time I look at a, a, a system or a situation or a problem and think, if only. This wasn't there. If only this law didn't exist. If only that mountain didn't block the sun. If only that building wasn't dilapidated. If only somebody didn't pour concrete here. If only somebody didn't dig a hole here. Or fill in the blank with whatever you want. Jeff said this on my, he might have said it on my podcast the first time he ever said it. The more restrictions upon a design, the more eloquent the design. And then it didn't fit in the, in the graphic here, but he added, if the designer is good at his task. And this is where we get into understanding the value where we started today. The value where we started today is that by having those restrictions of the prime directive, first we must care for ourselves and our children before we tell somebody in another country how they should be living. And we must care for the earth and we must care for people and we must return surplus so that systems do not degenerate. Those restrictions lead us here. That's why I put this near the end. Because when we are without restriction, maybe you get good at this. You have a client. They have a 100 acres. It's a bare field. Sun hits the same everywhere. There's no forest around it. They want to change that, but that's where they're at. There's no house. There's no roads. Water access and structure, which we'll cover later, are not in the system yet. It is a 100-acre square of grass. You have nothing to make your design eloquent. Nothing. But if you take the directive and you take the limitations placed on you by the ethics, you get your initial restrictions. As you go, you will find more restrictions. As you design with the restrictions or around the restrictions, the eloquency of the design will increase. And it's, it ends up to be the point where when you find something that really is restricted in what you can do, 
with budget, with space, with time, with climate, you start to go from being disappointed to being excited. Because now you can, you can dig into the full toolkit of permaculture and you can pull from that toolkit, out from that wardrobe, the arrow, arrow out of the quiver that was custom made for this restriction. And that's a deep one. Don't think that I spent uh, only a small amount of time on it. Be something that uh, says that I don't think it's actually the most important thing I gave you today, because it is. It is. But it's one of those things that you need to put in your head and you need to rattle it around and you need to think about what it means to you. And you need to go back to some place that you've tried to design, whether it's a business or a backyard, whether it's a small holding or a broad acre, and you ran into a roadblock. And you need to ask yourself, what is that restriction telling me? What is what is the power of that restriction? How will this enable me to be better at what I'm doing? How will it actually make the system I'm building last longer and do more if I embrace it instead of push it away? And what will happen is the more permaculture designs you look at and the more you let go of being attached to the design and taking from the design the theory and the practice and the strategy and the tactics in it and seeing them as now I know I can do that. I remember when I first got into this, I looked at one of Jeff's designs and it was this beautiful property and there was road, hardball road where there was an opportunity to, uh, to catch a lot of water and there was a driveway that went into it. And so he put two long lakes along that driveway and he pushed the hard catchment water into those two long canal like lakes. And then they did other things from there. But man, I fell in love with that design. I thought that was like one of the most beautiful things I ever seen. I could envision myself having a property someday, even if I didn't own it, one that I designed that I would pull in and I would see those incredible aquatic features leading up to where people lived. And Amazingly, every time I pulled into a property with a long driveway, I wanted to put two canal lakes on both sides of it. Sometimes it actually would have made a lot of sense. A lot of times it wouldn't have because I was ignoring the restrictions and I was attached to the tactic and the technique instead of seeing the overall discipline and strategy. That's important with where we're going next. Okay. So permaculture, I want to just do a couple myths and then we'll wrap up today. I hope everybody's enjoying this. We seem to be keeping a large number of people on the live stream, so it must uh, must be doing pretty well for most people. Myth number one, and I hear this from a lot of people. Most people that say this have never t- actually touched or learned anything about permaculture, only perennials. It's very common. I, I believed it in uh, about 2007 before I even started my podcast. I had heard about this hippie ideal called permaculture. We'll get to the hippies next or soon. And but I liked it. Even though I don't consider, I actually do consider my, myself a hippie, but not the stereotypical hippie. I call myself a redneck hippie duck farmer. Um, I liked it because I like the idea of planting a thing that lives longer than me. I like the idea of not tilling soil every year. I like the idea of doing a thing once and then just doing a little bit of maintenance and it carrying for generations. If I teach the next generation how to take care of it, I like that. All. So I really thought when I first heard the word permaculture, that it was, we plant trees instead of corn. And that's such a limited view. 
So the first myth is that permaculture is only perennials. And I've, I've, I've had this discussion with a lot of like conventional gardener type people and all. And it's not. The, I'm, I'm back to that image that I gave you in my aviary. Every single thing in there, except the ground nut and the Chinese artichoke, is an annual. And they, they're growing and intergrowing with each other. They'll be different. It looks a lot different than it does now. Those stands all those beds are on are now, those beds are now on the ground. It gave me more vertical space to work with. But the Chinese artichoke and the ground nut will be back this year. And there'll be different annuals interplanted with them, depending on what I want to grow this year. But permaculture is a design science. It's not what you plant. And it's really important that we understand that. And annuals, especially for people that are more on a plant-based diet than I am personally, I'm much more toward the carnivore side of things, are incredibly important to our diet because we can't always rely on perennials. I haven't had a good fruit yield in three years on my farm, even though I have a ton of perennial fruit trees. Why? We've had weird wonky winters. We've had really, really warm early winters. Trees bud out, trees put blossoms on, then it goes down to nine degrees below zero. You ain't get no fruit. All the blossoms fall off, you're done. Goodbye, go out. This year, everything's working perfectly. But if we want to have, you know, reliable production, what we can do with annuals is very important toward the uh, plant-centric portion of a diet, whether it's a small amount or a large amount. We actually eat a ton of vegetables. We just eat mostly leaf vegetables. That's why you see things like leaf amaranth there. Like fennel, like nasturtium. That's why we, we focus on them, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Whatever you want, you can design into a permaculture system. Next up, permaculture myth two. Permaculture is a specific technique or small group of techniques or strategies. So recently I was talking, I don't even remember what it was that I was teaching in one of my videos. And I said, this is, this is, this is a permaculture technique. And a person commented, I'm not putting them down because if, if this wasn't a myth, I wouldn't bring it up. They said, I thought permaculture was when you took chickens and what they were basically describing was a chicken tractor and you move the chickens and then you plant stuff. Well, we could do that and do a garden. Jeff Lawton has a great video that tells you how to do exactly that to establish food forests. We bring chickens in in a relatively big tractor, and instead of moving them to improve pasture, we leave them in one place for a long period of time until they literally take it down to nothing. Then we move them out. Then we plant our pioneering species of trees and our long-term overstory trees and our long-term subcanopy trees in, and then we begin a chop-and-drop process, and we use the chickens to advance the forest. That's great. It is permaculture, but it's not what permaculture is. Or a food forest in swales is permaculture. I've had people say, I don't want swales, so I don't want permaculture. You're confusing a technique or a tactic or a strategy with a discipline. That's why this series is called Permaculture is a Design Science. So if you look at a science, right, and then you look at a scientist and they run an experiment, maybe they will use a particle laser in their experiment. But particle lasers are not science. They're a tool used by science. Beakers are not science. Bunsen burners are not science. They are tools used by scientists. Chemical reactions aren't science. They're something we might use in an experiment or use the chemical reaction that happens naturally to understand the nature of a thing. Science is the discipline. These are all tactics and strategies and techniques. 
Permaculture is best viewed as a giant quiver and you are an archer. And I want a food forest over there. And then these five arrows come out. They get shot at this particular time in this particular order to get this particular type of forest. That's how we view permaculture. And if it, if it takes care of the earth, takes care of people, returns surplus and sees to future generations, that arrow, in my opinion, and I'm not in charge of anything, and we're going to finish with that, by the way, but that arrow goes in the quiver. I may never pull that arrow out. I go to a property. I do this all the time. I go to a property. Somebody says, I want to put in swales. Okay. And I don't do this a lot, but occasionally, I, I really defer most of my consulting now to Nick Ferguson because I don't have time for consulting anymore. But in the beginning, I did a lot of like small consulting jobs. I usually didn't even charge for it. I was learning. I didn't think it was right to charge while I was learning, but I go out to a place. I want to put swales in. I bring my laser level. got my marking flags and all. Take a look at the property and go, why? Oh, I saw a video of a food forest. I want a food forest. Okay, you have sandy loam soil. It's relatively flat. You live in a climate with 60 inches of rainfall a year. You don't have that big of a property. You're in a very non-brittle situation. I can see one place that maybe a diversion drain or a, a long swale system will work, but you don't really need swales, and you certainly don't need to swell the whole property. But they got in love with the idea. I even did a long time ago. I had to find it somewhere. I did a poem off the of, hook. It was based on Shakespeare, to, to, to be or not to be. It was to swale or not to swale, right? And, like, there are things that we look at and determine, like, swales go here really well, but and maybe if it was my property, I would swale it, but when I examine the client, which is you, and when you do an analysis and you're doing this for yourself, since you don't have a client, you need to start with zone zero in the analysis, not the landscape. You're zone zero. Well, how much maintenance are you going to put into this system? What are your goals for the system? What do you like to eat? What's, if you don't really like eating fruit, putting in a thousand apple trees, unless you're going to raise deer on them, doesn't make sense, right? That's, that, 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 we have to start with that mindset. Man, we got the spam coming today. I guess you guys can just ignore it, but it's like we have this, like different spammers all doing the same spam. Anyway, we, we want to examine the client and then we want to pull from the quiver to do the things that actually fit the client. And so Ecomass says, I wish we had 60 inches of rain per year. We work with 14 to 16, hence harvesting snow when available. Absolutely. And the more restrictions on the design, Ecomouse, the more eloquent the design. Because somebody one day is going to come to your desert permaculture paradise and say, man, I wish I lived in a desert. I'm telling you. You, you. you show somebody an amazing garden that was built by a church with raised beds in a parking lot, and they become envious that they don't have a parking lot because the grass is always greener. We need to think. Um, thousand apple trees unless you're raising deer. He laughed out loud at that one. So, so true. Dang deer. You know what else eats apples? Oh, chickens eat apples. Turkeys eat apples. Pigs eat apples. Cows eat apples. Right? We can grow a plant. Like, here's a plant that we can grow a commercial variety of, and it could be a money plant, persimmon. Or we can grow Native American persimmon that have some use for humans, but they're not the best plant for humans. But they hold really late in the season a very high carbohydrate crop, and the winter wind, all the leaves are gone, the winter winds come, and the last of the persimmons fall to the ground, and there's a battery of calories for your livestock or for 
the wildlife that you're cultivating. Maybe you have a place where I had people tell me one time, like, man, I used to have a garden, but I stopped growing it. I shot eight deer over my garden last year. And I'm like, you have a deer garden. If you like venison, that's not a problem. You get what you get. The deer get what you don't get and you get venison. That's that is win, win, win. There's ways we can design that so that deer doesn't get in there, but it's not a problem. It's a solution. The last one. And I'm not putting anybody down here for those that can see the image. Permaculture myth three. Permaculture is only for mud hippies or some other subgroup. Um, that actually is from a permaculture gathering. That is a group of people at a permaculture gathering smearing mud on each other. It's a very famous picture. And it's kind of where I first came into this and I didn't understand it. Kind of what I thought. Like, like it was cool for me too, but I really wouldn't fit in because it's really for hippies, right? And not my kind of hippie. Not the hippie that has a rifle behind him. This is these kind of hippies. Well, the interesting thing is I've been to permaculture gatherings where it wasn't quite this hippie-ish, but it was kind of like if you've ever heard the song by Toby Keith, I love this bar. You know, we got hippies and we got, you know, yuppies and we got bikers and like everybody's at this cool bar getting along. That's what some of the big permaculture gatherings I've been at like. Like there are people like they're all in every day I'm going to do yoga, man. You know, I'm not doing yoga. Like my, my wife has a little sign she has in the kitchen. It says, I relax by drinking or by doing yoga. And it says, just kidding. I drink wine in yoga pants. Now I'm not going to drink wine in yoga pants, but I'm much closer to Dorothy's philosophy than this philosophy that you see in front of you. But I'm a permaculturist and I've dedicated an awful lot of what I do and an awful lot of my life and a lot of, a lot of my intellectual study into permaculture. If you are a Republican, permaculture is for you. If you are a Democrat, permaculture is for you. If you are a libertarian, permaculture is for you. If you are an anarchist, permaculture is for you. If you are a hippie, permaculture is for you. If you are a yuppie, permaculture is for you. If you care about yourself, your children, and your grandchildren, permaculture is for you. If you care about eating better quality food, permaculture is for you. If you want to spend less money to heat your home, Permaculture is for you. If you want to spend less money to cool your home, permaculture is for you. If you want to reduce the mileage you expend every day so you spend less money on this gas that keeps going up in price, permaculture is for you. I don't know. I absolutely don't know who permaculture isn't for. Who permaculture isn't for. And that's where I want to go to some, some final thoughts with this. Um, it's important. Did we understand the powers that we play with as humans? And when the series is over, you're going to feel very, very empowered if you make it all the way through it. And you're going to feel like you can go out and you can make some things happen and you can. But you also can make some bad things happen. When we start talking about earthworks and swales and dams, if you can't do the math, and the product, the project is big enough that math needs to be done to know that that dam won't break and wipe out your neighbor. Then even if the engineer you're going to talk to doesn't know the first thing about permaculture, you need to talk to an engineer that can do that math. That says that damn wall will stand up to what you're doing. And they don't need to understand why you did a swale the way you did. But what's the catchment area? What are the overflows? What are the spillways? You need to understand the power that you're playing with. Because what we're talking about here is becoming co-creators with natural ecosystems. And that's incredibly powerful. 
And there are places where you really need to be cautious with what you do. But there's another side. So everybody knows the famous phrase. I think it was in Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility, right? But there's a responsibility in not misusing a power. But there's also a responsibility to if power can be used for good and you have the ability to do it, then you, in my view, if you really mean what you say when you say I want to be responsible for myself and for my children, then you need to use that power for good. You need to do something. Not everybody's going to build um, a hundred acre food forest or a three quarter acre food forest like I have. Not everybody's going to raise a flock of ducks primarily so they can sell an egg product to customers who can't eat an egg without the egg we produce. That's what we do. That's our main thing we do on this farm. We feed our ducks a special ration that's soy free. And we have customers that literally can't eat an egg without our product. They'll drive an hour and a half to buy our product. We don't make a ton of money on it, but we do it because we care about that. You may not do that. You may live in a little what they call garden home, like a half double duplex with a little tiny backyard. And you may think all I can do is grow an herb garden, put in some really cool flowers for bees and butterflies and grow a little bitty garden and I can harvest a couple salads a week with that. But what you've just said is what you can do. And now you've used what you can do as an excuse not to do it. If I didn't believe that more people would take action because of this series, I would not put the effort that I've already put into it today and the effort that will come over the next five, six, seven weeks into it. I'm not doing it for content. If you're new to me, I've done over 3,000 freaking podcasts. I am not short on things to talk about. I'll talk about guns one day, gardening the next, entrepreneurship after that, putting together shop tools after that, uh, backup power, storing food. I am not short on things to do. I am not doing this just for another thing to talk about. That's not what's going on here. I'm doing this because I believe that we have a power within us to literally create life. We can't create life the way the universe or God does, however you explain it, but we can create life where it was, there was little life. We can make abundant life or where there's almost no life. We can cause life to colonize. We can take a bare field and turn it into a forest. We can take a barren landscape and turn it into an incredible aqua aquaculture. That last, if, if something irradiated every human being and killed all of us, but left the rest of life behind a thousand years, an alien species would come and know somebody did that, even though it looks fully natural, because it would be obvious that a designer touched it. We have that power. And we have used so much of our power for destruction that there are places where we, we have this asinine thought. And I'm going to try very hard not to curse during this series. I, if you just found me and you tune in tomorrow, you may hear the F word. I don't know who we're interviewing tomorrow, so you may not. I think it's actually kind of a permaculture topic tomorrow. But Thursday or Friday, you probably will. I try to keep these types of things G-rated. But it's the only word I have for it. And I'm not even sure it's a bad word. But this asinine view 
that all humanity need do to repair the damage that we have done as a species to this planet is to leave it alone and not touch it. I used to believe that because I was ignorant. There are places that have been set aside as reserves. And right next to them is land that's being improperly grazed by cattle, rangeland. And there's a fence that goes down the middle. I'll try to include a shot on this in the future for you. Uh, I learned about this from Alan Savory, another great guy to learn more from on holistic grazing. And he said, there's, there's national forest, national parkland, grassland, never touched by a cow. Fence separates it. Cows aren't allowed to go there. People can only go there and take a walk. Here's land that's being grazed poorly. Which side is which? And you can't tell. Because that ecosystem is so damaged and so degraded and so messed up because of our activities that we need to go in and fix it. And taxing a substance won't fix it. Going in and saying, this is a place where earthworks need to be, we'll fix it. This is a place that needs to be colonized by pioneering species we need to bring in, we'll fix it. We can do that. And I know some of you are thinking, God, Jack, I don't, I don't have the power to go out and change 5,000 acres of screwed up ground into anything. Some of you won't ever have that power. You got your little backyard. But then there'll be some of you like Neil Spackman took a permaculture design course and went and terraformed freaking hundreds of acres in the desert of Saudi Arabia with Bedouins. Never underestimate the power that this brings to you. Never fail to respect it in being careful how you use it, but never fail to respect it in your obligation to use it. That'll end that. I'm going to go through a few starred things here. Let me uh, star one more that came in just real quick because we're almost to two hours. Uh, does changing the parking in the backyard help change zone one? Does changing the pot? I'm not really sure what Bruno means by this. Does changing, but if you move where you park, it will absolutely have an impact on how you design your zones. So there's a couple of things with parking a car, right? One is that car is going to go back and forth on that place. So it's either we're going to put concrete down or gravel or something like that, or we're just going to compact the ground. What happens on hard ground when water hits it? It Less of it or none of it goes in. It's either a hard ball and 100% runoff, or it's just compacted and more runoff than would normally infiltrate. So what do we do with that water? Where does it go? How do we get it there? Those are questions for the designer. If we have an area that would make a real, like, let's say that we have, and we're not in a place where HOAs are going to tell us we can't, beautiful location for a garden is the front yard. Then moving parking to the back will make that available for the garden. So absolutely. And remember, the zones were made for you, not you for the zones, right? To paraphrase the Bible. Um, Xavier Hawk, my buddy, says, uh, extra credit at the end. How does this transpose to economics from your perspective? I think we covered that. We can design an entire economic system based on permaculture. We can use something that looks like a problem in some people's mind. Let's say Bitcoin. Bitcoin's energy intensive. Yeah, but you know, when we use it right, it actually can be used to produce a hell of a lot more, uh, renewable energy. Because the less the energy costs, the more profitable the Bitcoin mining is. And when we design it properly, renewable energy is the least expensive that there is long term. 
or we can afford to develop renewable energy sources in places where normally we wouldn't because there's nobody there yet. So the Bitcoin mining can be used to design that. That's going to challenge some of you. It's just an example, though. We can design an entire economic system. If you go into Chapter 14 of the Permaculture's Designer Manual, it says alternative strategies for a global nation. And it's not about a one world government like some people think to think, seem to think. It's actually about empowering communities at the smallest level possible to sustain themselves and interact with other communities. And if you look at the diagrams within there, it's that that entire community should do everything it can for itself as far as economics, as far as food, and then it should trade with its closest neighbor that can help it. And only then should it go out into what we call the mainstream world. So there's there's a thousand ways to answer that uh, X, and we probably won't go to much more of them today. George says, in, in suburban lot one quarter, where should I put compost? Well, you should design your zones based on your activity and the kind of compost that you're creating. If you have a small chicken coop and you're producing a small amount of compost, it probably makes sense to give the chickens a place to eat those scraps and to process the scraps in a small contained area that they can get to. If you don't, you wouldn't do that. So if you had chickens in the design, you would probably, not all 100%, but you would probably locate your compost where it was ideal to locate your chickens. And then you would probably have a path that every day or so many days when you're going out to the chickens, you take a little little tub of of compostables with you. So you might want to plant along there high-intensity annual or perennial systems that are going to develop weeds. And then instead of seeing the weed as a problem, it's chicken food. So when I see the weed and it's this big, I resist the temptation to pull it out. Next week when it's this big, as I'm walking by with my compost, I grab it and throw it in there and I dump it in the compost pit and then I get my chicken's eggs. But what if I don't have chickens? Well, then, you know, unless you're going to get significant um, bulk for doing composting, you're going to have the problem of the half-baked cake. So you put stuff in the compost, it starts composting, you put more, it starts coming, and it's always out of time and out of sequence. So you would probably be better off with small amounts of compost in a suburban situation using a worm farm for your compost. In fact, far better off. Now where are you going to locate it? Where the worms will live best and where you can get to easily. Or maybe you you put in keyhole gardens we talked about. So you have a kind of a shaped garden with like this access point, and right where you go into the garden to manage the whole garden from, or at least half the garden from, we take a great big pipe, we drill a bunch of holes in it, we sink it down into the ground, and we have a worm tower. And our worms go in there and eat, and they go back into the soil, and nutrient flushes out. So then I would locate the composting apparatus where I located the garden. So this is all going to be about zones of activity and what works best for you. So how could I possibly tell George where he should put his compost in his urban lot when I don't know how, I don't know where it is. I don't know what the climate's like. I don't know what other things he has on it. You have to start pulling those arrows out of those quivers, shoot the right arrow in the right place at the right time. And if you shoot the wrong arrow at the wrong time in the wrong place, permaculture principle, accept feedback and adjust. And so unless you're putting in a dam or some major earthwork or building a structure, be a little comfortable in spite of the, the, my little soliloquy at the end there about uh, responsibility and power in that you can always change it. Uh, Mark Lobus says, which zone is okay for a bunker, Jack? Now, he means that as a joke because I'm a prepper. Good natured, I think. Um, but somewhere in zone one, zone zero, so you can get there quickly. 
Let's not even worry about the bunker for World War III, which you're not going to need. We have these things in Texas called tornadoes, these vortexes of death. Unlike hurricanes that show up a couple times a year in your area, and if you see like a zone of certainty, you can just get in your car and leave. We can't leave Texas, our homes, every time there might be a tornado. First of all, wherever we're going, there might be a bigger one. And second of all, we'd be leaving like a couple times a week some years, and at least a couple times a month some others. So we have to stay put. So we won't need a tornado shelter. This is actually a completely legitimate permaculture question. I don't want a place where it's going to take forever for me, my wife, and my dogs to get into. I want it to be easily accessible. So there's your answer on that. Um, off topic, we'll do it anyway. Brad says, can you do a video of how my 16-year-old can buy Bitcoin? He buys it the same way that you do. Set up an account with Strike and buy Bitcoin. Stop making it hard. Set up an account at any brokerage that you have to do. Know your customer and buy it. All right. It's not hard. I actually just showed you how to do it in a video I did last week. Uh, best way to find TSP listeners in my area. I would get on Discord and Telegram and MeWe. And I would just say, Hey, I'm a TSP listener. This is kind of where I live. Is there anybody else around here? We're all over the place. There's actually meetups all over the place, et cetera. Um, but one of the things I'll, I'll, I'll end with now is on community because community is a very important part of permaculture. Let's not think that we need find TSP people to find permaculture allies. Let's not think we need to find permaculture people to find permaculture allies. Always lead in every interaction with the relationship, not why you should have a relationship or not what it can do for you, but what can you do for the other person? And remember, when we get into permaculture, there are people that get into like they become permaculture purists and what somebody's doing is not good enough. And I liken it to when a baby's learning to walk. If the first time the baby pulled himself up and took a step and fell on the ground, we said, oh, you stupid baby, you'll never be able to walk. You're doing it wrong and pushed him down. Every, like they never learn to walk. Right. What do we do? We say, come on, let's go try it again. We clap. We make it a game. Right. And we need to really, really think about that uh, when it comes to building community. For, so thanks for that question. There's some more, but guys and gals, that's an hour and 53 minutes for the audio version of the show. I still need to cut in um, an intro and an outro segment. That'll put us over two hours with the bumper music and all. Uh, I appreciate everyone turning out today. If you want to listen to the audio version of my podcast and learn more about it, we're on most of the podcast feeds. I'll give you an update. We're working with Apple. Uh, last week on Tuesday, my podcast stopped updating on Apple because there's been so much censorship in the world. People think that Apple is being evil to us. They're not. They're working with us. We're trying to figure it out. None of us can figure out what's going on. And I don't know that they're on the right track, but we're going to do the things they act. Oh, Tom says Apple is fixed, so they were right. They said my graphic was too small. Jeez, it worked. Cool. Thanks, Tom. So we are on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We are everywhere. You will find us anywhere and everywhere. Just search for the Survival Podcast. And if you see kind of a black silhouetted head with like headphones on, that's it. If you have a hard time finding it on your podcast platform, put Survival Podcast Jack Spirko, S-P-I-R-K-O, and you will find us. And we have 3,000 episodes on the website located at the survivalpodcast.com. There's about 300 in the podcast services because if I make the RSS feed have 3,000 articles, it breaks stuff. So I limit the RSS feed to 300. All of the older ones can be found at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Or if you don't want to type all that crap out, 
How about tspc.co will get you there? If you want to know when you can catch live feeds, you can just go to tspc, tspclive.com, and you'll always see the next upcoming live stream or the one we just did because it takes me a while to update it for the next one that's coming. I'm on all sorts of social media platforms. You can follow us there. If you like what you heard today about permaculture, if you are a permaculturist yourself, please share this with others. And you can even let them know this guy's not your typical permaculture teacher. And I am a big believer that hoarding knowledge is the sign of a psychopath. I do occasionally put courses out that I charge for, et cetera. Um, but it's never information that you won't get any other way. It's that there's a cost associated in time and effort to make something rigorously academic. And then I think a teacher's, you know, entitled to a return of their investment on that. But I give away everything I have and I don't begrudge anybody only taking what they want. If you want to Jeet Kune Do, my podcast and pick and choose what you listen to, you are in good company. It's what most people do. So if you want to share me with other permaculturists and they don't know who I am yet, and you might be shocked they might, um, you can let them know, man. This guy's going to talk about guns someday. If that's not your bag, don't worry about it. I like what he has to say about permaculture. Thanks to all of you. I will catch you tomorrow. What are we talking about tomorrow? We have It's a interview day. We have Drew Holman, an unlikely entrepreneur, and we're going to talk about the power of living foods. So if you're new to us, you'll even like that episode. That will be episode uh, 3049. Take care, guys. Again, thank you for being part of this today. All right, guys, I hope you, you guys enjoyed that. Please hang on for me for just a minute if you've listened this long. I got a couple things here at the end that you might want to hear about. Uh, I don't have an item of the day for you, so I'm not, I'm not keeping you on so that you'll buy something. I got really busy this morning and didn't have time to do one. As always, though, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. When you go there, you help us out no matter what you buy. There's a couple things I want to say that are important because we beat up on big companies and big tech all the time. And I believe even when somebody you're not exactly in love with does something right, you should acknowledge it. So number one, uh, as you heard there at the end, Tom, my web guy, got in touch with me. He said uh, that, that the Apple problem is fixed. I want to acknowledge because I had tons of emails. You're not showing up in Apple. Did they ban you from Apple? First of all, I never disappeared from Apple Podcasts. So clearly one's not banned. What happened was the show stopped updating. So the new shows weren't showing up. And this happened on t the Tuesday show from last week was there, and then everything forward was not updating. We did a, a customer service request with Apple, and I honest to God thought I was sending an email into the ether of nothingness. People got back with us. They helped us. We walked through everything together. It did take some time, but as of now, the problem is rectified. And how it was a problem, I don't even know, but they were right and I was wrong, and they helped us. And it was even escalated to a higher level of support, and Apple helped us get our show working again. So I want to acknowledge that. Next, yesterday... In the middle of the live stream, all of a sudden the stream kept cutting out, and a lot of people, again, thought that maybe we were being censored or messed with or whatever by StreamYard or one of those platforms we're streaming to. It was nothing like that. There was a technical problem at StreamYard. They had some sort of connection problem. They didn't explain it. That's how they described it, a connection problem. And it came up, and it said, this is happening, and I was able to finally get back on the feed long enough to say, hey, I'm going to go finish the show in audio only. I'm sorry. And so that was done. Okay. This is the part I want to brag on StreamYard a little bit. 
Okay, I'm a customer of StreamYard. I spent some money there, but it's not a buttload of money. It's like, I think it's 30 bucks a month or something like that to be able to stream the eight platforms. It's not chump chase, but it's not like I'm not some mega corporation. I got an email about two hours after that stream ended from StreamYard. Dear customer, our logs indicate that during our connection problem today, you were one of the, pro the parties affected. We deeply apologize for this. I'm paraphrasing. This is pretty close. We deeply apologize for this. We appreciate your business. We have taken corrective action to fix the problem. And they acknowledge it did not affect everybody. It only affected certain customers. I guess if they're you know partitioned off groups, specific servers you're using, whatever. But it was me and some other people. And they not only said, hey, it's affected you. Our logs indicated it affected you while you were streaming. And we realize that you have our service for a reason. We have fixed it, and it should not affect you again. In a world where when you send a customer service request into most companies, you get nothing back, or they cut and paste something out of an FAQ, I'm going to rate Apple's performance on this an A, and I'm going to rate StreamYard's performance an A double plus, if such a thing exists, because I didn't send them an email. I didn't complain. I accepted it as being a glitch. They proactively not only fixed it, but reached out to me and, and apologized for it. Those of you who have done business with me for you know a, a significant portion of the 13 and a half years, almost 14 years we've been online, know that that's my philosophy. And so even when it's a giant corporation, and even when it's like Apple, I'm not exactly thrilled with some things Apple does. I appreciate it, and I think it should be acknowledged. And in this case, both of them got you know a 4.0 grade point average for handling this crisis. We were never censored. Nobody was ever trying to silence us. YouTube's done that. Facebook's done that. To be fair to Apple, Apple has never silenced, censored, or taken down a single episode of TSPC. And if you really want to think about it, the people that have like kicked it around doing it to Joe Rogan, Haven't been Apple. That's the exclusive agreement he has with Spotify. Uh, and Spotify hasn't taken us down either. So we've been on the, on the, up till now. I'm not saying it's going to be forever, but up till now, I can't accuse any podcast platform of ever impeding my ability to meet, reach my listeners. And when it happened to a thing, uh, due to something that was a technical error, and it really was on our side. It doesn't make any sense, but it was. Apple fixed it, and it went back and forth several times with a sincere desire to help us, and I appreciate what those folks over at Apple did for us. With that, I've been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? said you should have a house the American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this let me show you a better way